Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, so we're going to go into Joshua chapter 5 tonight. Um, if you turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5, we're going to talk about first things first, um, because God has a number of first things first as they're heading into the promised land. Now, if you remember uh, two weeks ago, I said that I didn't cover certain things that we traveled through Joshua 4, and I said I'd go back, and you probably don't remember me saying that, but I said I would go back and cover these couple things. So I want to do, take a couple of quick applications or thoughts as I go into by way of introduction uh, tonight. So if you're, you're in Joshua 5, but look at chapter 4, and I want to show you verse 19. And in verse 19, this is the verse I said we'll come back to next week, and it's been two weeks ago now. It says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. Now notice it says on the tenth of the which month? Of the first month. Now, that is actually April the tenth. Now I want you to hold that thought, keep your marker right here in your Bible, and turn to your left and go to Exodus chapter 12 to a place that we have visited before. And I want to do something with these dates to show you how things are paralleling right here. In Exodus 12, when you're there, say, I'm there. Exodus 12, it says this, verse 1, I'm read seven verses. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to, now notice it's the first month, beginning of the month. Uh, it, it begins right there. Um, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month. So it's the first month now. It's the 10th of that month. They are each to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then, notice it starts on the 10th, that's the 14th day you keep it. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, we know that's Passover, correct? The very first Passover ever. They take the blood, they put a doorpost and lintels. But if you notice the, the, um, the time of year, the day, the month, everything, it's talking about the same time. It says back in, uh, in verse, uh, it says it's the 10th month in verse 3, but look at verse 2. It says the month shall be the beginning of months. But in verse 3, it's the 10th month. Do you see the discrepancy right there? What's happening right here is this, that it is the 10th month of the year for them in what's called the civil calendar. But it now, at Passover, the very first Passover, now it begins a whole new calendar for them. They don't eliminate the civil calendar, but now they start a religious calendar. And that part of the year, April, will now be the first month of the year in the religious calendar. So now, as you look at it, April 10th, Joshua, go back to Joshua 5, you can come back there now. Uh, you, you realize 
that Joshua, chapter 4, I should say, verse 19, they've crossed the Jordan River. They crossed it on April the 10th. They crossed it on the same day that they would have taken, picked the lamb uh, to begin their four days of inspection during the very first Passover. And we know that the Passover started the deliverance from the Israelites from Egyptian bondage into new life. And now we see Joshua coming along, uh, and this is, you know, some 40 years later, and Joshua now, he has crossed on the very first day, April the 10th, that they would have picked that lamb and begun that week of Passover. So now you begin to see these parallels between the two right there. But then if you think about it, you take it further in the New Testament, Jesus, he is our Passover, amen? And he rides in Jerusalem on that little donkey. Now, you could say he rode in on April the 10th. I'd have to go back and look at the calendar and the year and know exactly the year. But it's around that time. And it would might most likely probably be April the 10th. Because Passover is always, I'm sorry, Resurrection Sunday is always around April the 17th. Because the, there's other reasons. I'll show you why. We move it all over the place because somebody a long time ago decided to make Easter the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox, which means what does that all even mean? It means that whenever the vernal equinox, first day of spring, then after that, then you have the first full moon, then after that, the first Sunday, that's how we get our Easter today. That's why it moves from March to April and all over the place, but Easter should actually be around April the 17th. So Jesus rides in on this time of year also, around April the 10th, if not April the 10th. He comes in, if you remember, they pick the lamb on April the 10th, do they not? They hold the lamb for four days, do they not, back in Passover? And Jesus now, as he comes in, he comes in on April the 10th, and for four days, as you read the Gospels, he is undergoing test after test and challenge after challenge for four days by the Pharisees, by the scribes. They are challenging him, they are testing him, because what are they looking for in him? They're looking for a flaw. They're looking for something that they can accuse him of, and they never could. In fact, when he goes to trial, they bring him up on phony charges. There were no charges. They just say, you just got to trust us. So for four days, Jesus is being examined and, expect, and, and inspected, and he passes every test. He passes every examination, and that's why he's the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice to be sacrificed for you and I on the cross. Amen? So there's these parallels right there. And if you think about Joshua, Joshua is the Old Testament name, Jesus, God of salvation. He comes in that promised land. April the 10th, Jesus, New Testament Jesus, God of salvation. He rides in April the 10th into Jerusalem at that time. So you see all these different parallels here. Now, let me give you one more thing before we hit Joshua 5. You want one more thing? It's just a quick one. Let me give you a quick one. They had a Gilgal memorial that in Joshua 4. Remember they take the stones out of the river? And each guy carries one on his shoulder. That means they're pretty heavy stones. They take 12 of them. And 12 is always a number you find repeatedly in Scripture. And they build this memorial. Now, if you think about that, 12 and these stones, and all they did was pile them up. You could not make any kind of an image, chisel anything to make an image of God because God is spirit, and you do not make a graven image of God. So they pile up all the 12 stones, and they're all ragged, jagged edges. There's nothing carved about them. 
And you put that and you parallel that and you think about, well, Jesus picked 12 disciples. They're simple. They're plain. They got rough edges. They got jagged edges on these guys. Any amens on that one? But if you take it further, then Jesus, he picks us and he wants to use us. We're plain. We're simple. Anybody have any rough edges right here? And we're the same thing. It's all the same thing. And so you see this whole pattern of God continue on and on. Let me tell you something about that. I would have never... You know, I still to this day, every so often when I, I don't think about it much anymore, but I wonder in the world, what was God thinking when he decided that me, a punk rocker, would eventually be a Bible teacher? How does that happen, okay? That only makes sense in heaven because it doesn't make sense on earth to me. Because I was a punk rocker and God saves me and here I am teaching the Bible and people would be shocked to know that I'm doing this today, some people anyway. So here we go, John 5. John 5. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now, They're in the land, and now they're in this land, and the enemies are terrified of the Israelites in the land. So if you and I are the Israelites, and the enemy's terrified because they heard God is part of the waters, the first move you and I probably would make is, let's go attack Jericho. Let's go get this thing underway. The enemy's scared. The enemy's backpedaling. We've got momentum. Let's go do it. But that's not the first thing first that God's going to do. There's God always does things a little bit different than you and I. Amen? Now, keep your finger here. Let's go back to a verse we probably visited before. Go to Isaiah chapter 55 and watch this in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, you're going to find something about God that drives you and I crazy, but it should not. When you're there, say, I'm there. See, because my mindset says we're in the land. Let's go attack Jericho. But God says, whoa, we've got some first things first. And look at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, we've all found that to be true. We all know that God's thinking sometimes doesn't seem to line up with our thinking, though we'd like it to. So God God thinks a little bit different. I mean, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, like I just said before, and the disciples really expected him to march over to what's called the Fortress of Antonia, where the Roman soldiers were, the Roman barracks, they really thought he was going to overthrow that thing. It's on the Temple Mount. It's right there by the temple. It's on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, but he doesn't go there. He does the exact opposite of what everyone is thinking. He goes to the temple, and he overturns the money changers. And he disrupts everything on that temple because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He just does things a lot sometimes or sometimes just a little bit different. Now, back to Joshua. Now, Joshua 5, verse 2. He says this, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Here we go, point one. The first first. And that is they must submit 
to a painful surgery. They must submit to a painful surgery. Now, let me explain some of these things. Why must the men be circumcised? I'll tell you why. Because when God called Abraham, or God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, then in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham when they cut the animal in half and Abraham falls asleep. Remember that one right there? And then in Genesis 17, God seals a covenant with a sign. And the sign is the sign of circumcision, which means that they were a marked people through the sign of circumcision. Now, why is that a big deal or what's some application for that? Because our bodies belong to God, do they not? And our bodies should be lived for the kingdom of God. We are marked people. They were a group of people, these Israelites here in Joshua 5, that had traveled through a desert. There were idol worshipers all around them, but now they're in the land. And that land is filled with all kinds of idol worshipers. It is pagan central. And there's all kinds of ugly things going on in that land. And there's the covenant again. They have to reestablish this thing to remember, you are marked people and you don't live like other people. Now, the question here, and it's kind of silly, but you look at verse 2 at the very end, they circumcise them for a second time. And I would facetiously say, what, did they like it the first time so much? They did it again? But the answer, it's okay to laugh, okay? But the answer, no, no. There's a reason why it says a second time. So let, let me take you down and explain what this thing is all talking about. So let's read verse 3 through 7, and I'll give you the second first, and that is in point 2. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth. Aren't you glad you're not saying that one? This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that He would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now, point two, another first. First things first. Circumcise the men who had never been circumcised. Now, the question again is, why were some of them men not circumcised if this is the covenant relationship with God. What's going on here? Why the mistake or what went wrong here? Well, turn to Numbers chapter 13. You're in a Bible study, so turn your Bibles over to Numbers 13. Let's go back over some territory here and see what happened in that desert. It's a well-known story of Caleb and Joshua along with the ten other spies to go spy out the land. This is a couple months after they'd left Egypt. When you're there, say, I'm there. Now watch in chapter 13 and verse 30. This is Caleb now. He's a good guy. He's a, he's a faith guy. And then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. In other words, he spied out the land. 
He says, it's ours. Let's go get it. And don't you like people like that? Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There's giant, big people there. There we also saw the Nephilim. These are large people. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. They find the Nephilim in Genesis 6. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and we were in their sight. Quick sidebar on that one. The way you view yourself is the... You, the way you view yourself is the way you will think that others view you. If you're insecure and view yourself incorrectly, you will think that everybody else views you that way. But they're not viewing you that way. You're viewing you that way, and you're thinking everybody else does. That's the problem with these guys right here. Now, so they have a problem. They don't believe they can take it. Look at chapter 14. After they give out the bad report, after they tell people there's no way, there's giants in the land, watch what happens. Then all the congregation... <coughs> lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Boy, that's real positive. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plundered. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They want to go back, right? And it's in this moment right here that God has a real hard time with these people. Now look at verse 26 later in the chapter, chapter 14. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, <coughs> saying, How long shall I bear with the evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness. In other words, you said we're going to die here. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to die here. Your corpses will die in the wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old on upward, everybody it's 20 and up, who have grumbled against me, surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Verse 31. Your children, however whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you, and which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness. Now what's going on? They grumbled, they complained, they doubted in this moment. Of time. They were a couple months out of Egypt. They were ready to go in. They were ready to go in. And they, they said, nope, we can't do it. We're going to die there. Our kids are going to die. So God says, okay, you wanna die, you're going to die here? Then you're going to die here. And that's why they spend 40 years in the desert and they, because they grumbled, because they didn't believe it. So God had to let that entire generation, age 20 and upward, die off. But they had children. Remember what he said about the children? They're going to grow up and they're going to go in. And now, what you realize now is this new generation of kids, this new generation of men, these warriors, 
They have never been circumcised. They've never experienced the covenant sign of God. And so now this is why when they get across the river, before they go to battle, God says, wait a minute. You are Hebrews. You are Israelites. You're the ones who are marked by God. You are in covenant relationship. We got to get this thing right and we got to fix it right now. So that's why they circumcise them before they ever go into battle. It has to be done. This is God's way. Now, New Testament circumcision. Check it out very quickly. Turn uh, in your notes about New Testament. New Testament believers, bullet point, are spiritual Jews. It's in your notes. New Testament believers are spiritual Jews. Now turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 28. As a New Testament believer, we are spiritual Jews. Now, Romans 2, <coughs> 28. Now watch this. I'm going to hit him and run. And I'm going to hit this next one and run too. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Did you catch that? Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So now you see the program changing. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, Holy Spirit. Not by the letter, meaning the law. And his praise is not for men, but from God. So circumcision, New Testament believers, our circumcision is that of the heart. We have an inward belief in God now. There's an interchange. We repent. So that's a distinction of us now. Circumcision still happens, but at salvation, it happens to the heart. Now, the next bullet point is the New Testament sign of circumcision is water baptism. Turn to Colossians. Go to your right a little further. Colossians chapter 2. Did you guys already turn there? I don't hear any pages at all, though. You guys are fast, unless you're writing. Uh, the New Testament sign of circumcision is water baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says this. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That coincides with Romans 2. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what, the, what Paul is saying is that for us as New Testament believers, when we get water baptized, just like their outward symbol of salvation, covenant relationship with God, our outward symbol of salvation is Water baptism. So if you've never been water baptized, guess what? You need to get water baptized. This is an outward expression, an outward symbol of an inward transformation of what God has done. It equates to the Old Testament circumcision. Now, let's go back to Joshua. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 8 says this. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nations that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Now, first things first, number three, and that is, first, a test of faith. Before they go to battle, before they go to war, before they attack Jericho, now there's got to be a test of faith. Now, think about this. <coughs> the previous generation dies in the desert because of a lack of faith. So this new generation has to trust God. There's got to be a difference in them between the old generation. Now, how 
Would be getting circumcised be a trust of God? Let me give you my thoughts. They're in Jericho. I'm sorry. They're across the river, the Jordan River. They're in the land. Jericho is only two miles away. Jericho's got a lot of soldiers too. Now, if you think about the ability to trust God, if God says, I want every male now circumcised, and they're only two miles away from the enemy, wouldn't that put them kind of vulnerable? Wouldn't that weaken them? You better believe it would. And if you doubt that, write down Genesis chapter 34. Read it later when you go home tonight. You will see a moment in time when men were vulnerable because of circumcision, and they were murdered, and they were killed. That's when they, they had... With the, the daughter Dinah, etc., etc. Now, so this now becomes a test of faith. Will I trust God? Will I trust God's word? When it looks like, no, God, we're going to be put in a place where we're going to be vulnerable and they could come and attack us and we could die. But God told Joshua from the beginning that we are to trust God's word. We are to think it, we are to speak it, we are to live it, and we are to trust it no matter what, and then we'll be made prosperous and successful. So now you see Joshua, first things first, he is doing what God said to do. Now, I want to give you another application because we fall prey to this sometimes in our life. Would you say that crossing the Jordan River and the waters backing up and parting for all those miles, would you say that's a spiritual high? I would say, yeah. Now, after that, now we find circumcised, but the enemy's right there. After the spiritual eye, there's a test of faith. You see that? Do you see that? Elijah, after he calls fire down from heaven, spiritual high, then there's a test of faith because Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. Remember that? Jesus, after he's baptized in the Jordan, heaven's open, God the Father speaks, spiritual high? Yeah, then he's taken into the desert, Test. Now, you see these things happen. Now, why this pattern? And by the way, if you don't realize this pattern, then you're going to think that sometimes that God is absent or something's wrong, or in worst case scenario, what have I done wrong that this is happening to me? When in reality, it's just that you might be coming off a spiritual high, something great. And typically, spiritual highs are followed by times of testing. Don't worry, there's nothing wrong. It's normal. This is a spiritual pattern. But the question is, why? I think there's a couple reasons. Because great victories can lead to arrogance, can they not? I think God needs to humble us. We have to be reminded that no matter how great the things that have happened that we're a part of, we have to be reminded that we have to depend on Him. And everything comes from Him. But let me tell you the big reason why I think these tests come after spiritual highs. And this go, might go against, and I've shared these illustrations before, but this might go against the grain of our thinking good. Because remember, God's ways are not our ways, right? So typically, um, God, now, after a spiritual high, will go into a test time, not because God wants to do a sin, but because God wants to show us off. Let me, sh- let me tell you what I mean. Here's my typical illustration for this one. I will use it every time I talk about Jesus and the death. Baptism, then in the desert. I'll use this every time. You've heard me say this all the Let's say you go down to the dealership because you want to buy the Dodge Challenger Hellcat with a zillion horsepower in that engine. And you guy, and that salesman comes out and he is eager. And, and he, oh yeah, let's go. And he takes you for a test drive. And he says, turn here, turn there. 
but he keeps you in a 35-mile speed limit zone. And he's going, how do you like it? It's great. And then, and then he says, turn right here. And then he brings you down Park Ridge across in front of all the elementary schools, which kids are out, and you got to go 25 miles an hour. And then finally he says, turn here, and he takes you back to the Dodge dealership, the lot there, and he says, how did you like the car? Wasn't it great? And you're like, I, I don't know. Because you never got to really experience the car. You, he should, and you say, no thanks, it doesn't go any faster than 30 miles an hour. And so what he should have done is taken you on the 15 freeway. He should have said, okay, hit the pedal, man. Let's see what it does. Because what you want to know as a driver of that car, is that car going to pin you to the seat? Isn't that what you really want to know? I want to know if it really has the power that it says. I want to know that. You see, but he didn't let you do that. He didn't show off the car to see what the car could do. And therefore, he might lose the sale. Let me tell you something about your life and my life. When you go through a spiritual high, and you're going to have them, we all have them, then you're going to go through a test time. And the test time, many times, like Jesus after the Jordan uh, baptism in the desert, is to, for God to show you off, to show people, look what my servant is all about. Look what happens to my servant. Look how they respond when things don't go exactly their way. Didn't God, when Satan comes and talks to him about, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And didn't he say that? He says, come on, try him, man. Because he says, well, he'll deny you, he'll reject. No, 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 try Job. Because God knew that something was in Job, that Job, he could show Job off. His faith was strong. And God does that in our lives. Every time we go to spiritual high, expect a test. I remember, God, this just popped in my head. I remember one time I came back from a mountain retreat. And boy, I was 20... Hey, babe, I think it was the retreat when, you know, you, God made you repent to come back and be my girlfriend again. I think it was that one. <laughs> That's a true story, by the way, that I won't go into right now. I, I came back. I just popped in my head. And um, it's a real good story, though. And I, and I came home that Sunday night, and I was a young homeowner, and I had the house rented out. And I got a call, and it was, it was like, it's on septic cesspool because it was county and Cornita and everything's backing up and I just had this high where Olivia realized, at least in my mind, I thought, she needs to know now that she's supposed to be my girlfriend and stuff like that. And so, because she's been unrepentant and so, but anyway. So I get back and I'm all happy and then I get the call that everything's backing up and everything's going back. You go from spiritual high to, and we all have that, don't we? And we all have that. There's nothing abnormal about that. There's nothing you did wrong. There's no reason to say what, what, God is our sin in my life. It's just normal Christianity. Now I want to show you something that I like. Look at verse 8. By the way, I like that, I like that thought a lot too, but here's a better one for me. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nations that they remained in their places in camp until they were healed. Okay, listen closely. No forward progress until they are healed. Why do people get stuck in life? No forward progress until they heal. 
Why do marriages crash and burn? No forward progress till they heal. Why does somebody, non-saved, girlfriends all the time, sex all the time, get saved, and then they jump in a new relationship and they start having sex with this Christian and they're both Christians? Why does that crash and burn? No forward progress till they heal and repent. Are you following me so far? Why does an abuser start abusing somebody else? No forward progress until you're healed. Right? Am I made my point? Okay, good. I'm going to take you down, down the road, down the yellow brick road here. Now, um, <coughs> so they're in the promised land. There's a lot of battles to be fought. They got to take the land now. But there's no forward progress until they heal up. We know literally that's circumcision and the surgery. But in our life, of every Christian, it's, just, it's not just Christians, it's everyone. There's no forward progress until we heal. There's none. We just get stuck. And God re- re- desires to restore our soul. We've read that, right? David the psalmist, he restores my soul. You know, that your soul may pro- God, that you may prosper as your soul prospers over in um, John, first John. Now, he wants to renew my soul so I can progress, so I can heal up and I can move forward. But the problem with me is, and it's a problem with all humans, and you've heard me say this many times, is every one of us here believes lies still. Any amens? We all do. I do. Everybody does. We've learned so many wrong things from the culture. We're still learning wrong things from the culture. We've learned wrong things growing up here or there. And so we have what we'll call stinking thinking. So we've got to fix the soul. Because until you start fixing the soul and get honest with self, then ain't nothing going to change. You'll start doing the same patterns and it'll always be the same results and then be the same frustration. You've got to find the off-ramp off that psycho freeway and find a new pattern. Follow me? So, the soul. What is the soul? The soul first is the mind. It's our thinking process. So, our mind is our thinking process. And then there's the will. Mind, will. The will is our decision-making process. You follow so far? But then we don't just have the mind and the will and the soul. We have the emotions. The emotions are the feelings. And how many of you know that our feelings, our emotions can drive us, huh? And drive us to make some pretty dumb decisions. And drive us into some cycles that we don't want to get into. Now, the problem is that, or or the solution is that we have to now, with our mind, our thinking, we have to be constantly washed. Washed clean by the Word of God. And that never ends, correct? It should never end. We're washing, we're washing the mind, wash to get the, this kind of thinking. And once I get this thinking going and I keep it going, then it affects my will. And once it affects my will, now I can start making right decisions in my life in every area of my life. I can break old cycles, I can break old patterns, I can do that because my mind is washing clean and continue to wash clean, and now my will can make right decisions based on that so that when my old emotions that always get in the way and try to lead me wrong ways, they get overpowered and overrun because my transformed mind and then my will that's living by the transformed mind says to my emotions, no, 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 no anymore. 
And that's when you begin to see real change and real transformation in life. And you begin to heal up and then you can move forward. How many have ever stopped at a railroad crossing because the train's coming by? Every one of us. Have you ever seen that train come by and the caboose is leading the way? You've never done that. No, because caboose don't lead the way. But when you're led by emotions, especially old emotions, old worldly emotions, our emotions are the caboose. And you don't want to be led by that. You want to be led by the engine. A transformed spiritual mind, and therefore my will, my decisions are based on that transformed mind. I've got the engine now leading the program. Am I making sense? And when it leads the program, that's when you start to heal, and now you can move forward and take the land and take Jericho and take city after city in your life. But until you start doing that, you are stuck. And you will say the same thing. Look, I've been in church a long time. You will start saying the same thing to this person and that person and that person. Years go by, and let me talk to that person. I'm going to tell you the same thing I said last week and six months ago. It's the same thing as you're stuck. And no matter who you talk to and keep sharing the same thing, not going to change anything. You got to change here. And you got to submit to what that, that Bible says. And then the, and then the decision-making changes. And the, the old emotions that used to run you and run you and run you, they don't run you anymore. Emotions are good, but they don't run you anymore. Because you're run by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. Am I making any sense? Because if you want to change, if you want to heal and move forward, that's what you got to do. And you got to do it every day of your life. And it never, ever can end. Now, verse 9. Let's drive this baby home. You thought I was driving it home right there, huh? No. Verse 9. <laughs> then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now, final first, the fourth one. First, God is going to answer the mockers. God is going to answer the mockers. He says, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What? Egypt was 40 years ago. And today you're going to roll, it was 40 years ago. We're rolling away the reproach today. Yeah. The name of the place they're at is, I like it like that. No, that's an old song. Yeah, that's just wrong. The name of the place is Gilgal. I thought about that earlier. I thought maybe I'll use it. Is Gilgal. It means the rolling. Now, here God says, I'm going to roll away the reproach of Egypt from you. Okay, let me give you the big last thought. Turn to Exodus 32. You're not coming back. We'll finish here. Exodus 32. Look at verse 12. This is Moses dialoguing with God. The Israelites... You've got Moses been up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and the law. And they're down the valley. They're sending up a storm. They think Moses is dead. They make it their own false little idol god. And they're having a fornication extravaganza down the valley. Verse 12. Why should, and Moses says to God, because God's going to wipe them out. He, just, he says, why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind, talking to God, about doing harm to your people. Okay. 
Moses seems, and I'll use the word seems, to be inferring that when Israel left Egypt, that some of the Egyptians were mocking. And they were mocking, saying, yeah, you're leaving here, but you're never going to make it anywhere. You're going to die in the mountains. You're going to die out in the desert. Yeah, you're getting out of here, but that's all going to happen. You're going to be erased from the face of the earth. God will never get you to the promised land. It sounds like that's what happened. God will never get you to the promised land. Well, we know now they're in the promised land. And God is now rolling away all the mockings, all the lies about them everything everybody said that wasn't going to happen. Has God ever mocked, uh, have people ever mocked what God is doing in your life? You know I have. Have people ever mocked the transformation in your life saying, oh, it's just temporary. You're not going to stay transformed. You're going to go back. Of course they have. I'll tell you, um, anybody in leadership knows this in anything. I've been mocked so many times by people. It's incredible. Uh, some of the lies that have been said about me, it's just my wife and I, we just had to giggle. How could somebody even make this stuff up? And you should write a book, a movie, a transcript, something. But um, one, of the, one of the things that I was mocked about, uh, and, and I've shared it before, is like, I remember it. And I'm a type A personality, so when you tell me I can't do something, that's the worst thing you could tell me. Because now I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you I can do it. Um, but I remember when God put on my heart to start the church, I had no money, had no people, had no, I had nothing. There's nothing. It just started from nothing. I was 35 years old, and somebody told somebody this about me when they heard I was going to plant this church. They said, and I quote, Jim, this is a Christian, Jim is all wet behind the ears, which means he's out of his mind. It's never going to happen. He just mocked me. And then we planted the church. And the church began to grow little by little. And by God doing that, God rolled away the mocking. Let me tell you something about God and about your life. When God tells you to do something, it's very important for you and for me. If you're in God's will, you don't have to defend it. Let God defend it. If people are mocking, don't verbally get into arguments with them. Just do God's will. Watch that they'll see it happen, and then that just shuts the mockers' mouths. God rolls away the reproach right here. You don't have to defend yourself. God is your defender. And so Israel was mocked. It seems like they were mocked. And now they're standing on the other side of the Jordan in the promised land. God brought them there. And God says, I've rolled away all the mocking that they did because you're here now. I did it. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray these words, God, made sense. I pray, God, we take something from tonight. And it sticks to our spiritual ribs. And we can grow from it. Thank you, God, for your word. It is alive and active. 
I pray blessings upon all who came out tonight. I pray blessings on those who watch this during the week upcoming. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.